Hi everyone. I want to welcome you to this very first session uh, about church history. We're going to be going very fast. We have about 2,000 years of church history to cover. And uh, it's, it's going to be like trying to feed you, give you a drink of water with a fire hose shooting at you. Uh, so we won't worry too much about all the details, but I want to give you uh, some details to show what happens when the church no longer viewed Scripture as being the authority coming from God as being the inspired Word. Uh, you know, Paul warned us about that. He warned us. He knew God had told him that uh, uh, apostasy, which is a straying away of the true teaching of the church, the straying away of that to a different teaching, that would happen, that apostasy. Now, Paul warned us, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, in uh, Acts chapter 20, he warns us, he went to the Ephesian church, and he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He'll be arrested there, but he goes there and he meets with the Ephesian elders. And of course, the elders are the uh, overseers, spiritual overseers of the church. And he gives this farewell address, but he also gives them a warning. God had, had let him know this. And in verse 28, he turns to them. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, that's the church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I happen to love that particular verse, knowing how precious the church is to God that He would purchase it with His own blood. But He, he gives them... To be, tells them to be on guard. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul gives this warning. And he says these things, that there's going to be savage wolves that will actually come out among you, among the eldership, and that they will speak perverse things, that they will take disciples for themselves rather than for Jesus Christ, and that there would be a covetousness for silver and gold and, and apparel, dress. Now, Paul realizes that this is coming. And there's a young preacher by the name of Timothy that he writes a letter to. 
And he, Paul is concerned about this apostasy, this straying away from what the church should be according to Scriptures. And so he writes to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 1 and following. He says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of their hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So, Paul gives this warning that there's going to be deceitful spirits, demons, doctrines, Doctrine is teaching. So there's going to be these teachings that the church may accept that come directly from demons. And then right before his death in 2 Timothy, he writes once again to uh, Timothy and he warns them of difficult times. He warns them that he needs to preach the word. And he tells them that they need he needs to correct, he needs to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and give instructions because, in verse 3 we find this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but wanting to have their own ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Timothy, as a preacher... He is he is told that they need to to watch out uh, for this doctrine that will not be sound. They, they they will not people will not endure sound doctrine. They will have teachers who teach what they want to hear. They will not listen to the truth. They're going to listen to fables. They want to hear stories instead of the word of God. And that came true. Now. We've already learned in our lessons that um, uh, there were those who tried to teach the new Christians who weren't Jews to become Jewish, so to speak. That they had to obey all of the law of Moses. They were called Judaizers. And that in Galatians, uh, Paul dealt with that in Galatians 5, 1 through 12, and you can turn to that when you want, but that, that they had to keep all the Jewish laws. Paul says that's not so. Circumcision was, was one that they argued about. And then in Galatians 1, 6 and 9, Paul gives some real instructions. He said, keep 
to the gospel that's been given to you by us, the apostles. Now, that's important because the way we find that is right here. It's written in God's Word that we are to keep the gospel according to what, the God of wor what God's Word says. And he even made this statement. He says, do not listen to another gospel even if it comes from an angel. Now, we know that there are cults out there that believe an angel gave them a book, writings. And so, Paul gives warnings that we are not to listen to an angel if it's another gospel. Well, very early in the church, things began to stray. There was apostasy. Uh, the develops in the second and following centuries actually prove Paul's predictions that an elder that presided over the meetings was called a bishop. And that's not... Bishop and elder was used in the same way. But they elevated the term bishop as being the head elder. And bishops began to have authority over other elders. Now this started in some of the big cities who had big churches and they had influence over the smaller churches. We find this happening in Rome. It happened in Alexandria. Even Ephesus, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. And they began to use terms as they are patriarchs. And they began to give them a, a higher elevated status. One such person was uh, Cyprian. He was the bishop of Carthage. Uh, in round, he lived around 248 to uh, 258 AD. And around that time this happened. The bishop was lord over that portion of God's heritage. Now, it's kind of interesting that they did that. But it was uh, until the 6th century, there was no idea of a universal bishop that would preside over all bishops. Now, today we know that term as a pope. But back then, they called it the universal bishop. And that began to happen because there was a a great disagreement and there was uh, there was an accusation that John Bishop of Constantinople had assumed the title of ecumenical or universal bishop. Now, Gregory was from Rome and he was really upset with that. And he had contacted others uh, like Gregory uh, had contacted others to say, we must stop this. Well, guess what? Gregory of Rome died. And his successor, who was Boniface III, assumed the title of universal bishop in 606 A.D. So the very thing that Rome was fighting about came to be with Boniface. In 1880 AD, the Vatican Council, 
group that came together, declared that the Roman bishop in Rome was infallible when it came to doctrine and morals when he was speaking concerning the church. Imagine that. In the 4th century, there also began a distinction between those who were ministers and other Christians. And we're all to be ministers, are we not? But the term clergy began to be used for ministers. And the word laity for the common person, those not serving and preaching. Uh, that was kind of an interesting development. Uh, I remember when I went to get my badge at uh, Altman Hospital, it had clergy on it. And I asked, can I change that? Can I have that changed? So they said, well, we'll put reverend. I said, no, don't put reverend. I'm not going to have reverend on there. Uh, they said, well, what do you want? I said, bro. I want bro, brother. Brother Mark Black. So they put bro Mark Black down. <laughs> and I, w I wore that for many, many years. Bro Mark Black. Unfortunately, it wore out kind of like me. But in the 4th century, that began to change. Councils developed. They began to get together. And they began, the church began to give authority to these bishops. And finally, in 325 A.D., Christianity became legal. Up to this time, 325 A.D., Christians were persecuted. They were outlawed. They were in hiding. But there was an emperor by the name of Constantine. And he made Christianity the state religion. There's a big argument whether he was truly converted to Christianity or whether uh, he saw it as something that would unite his empire. And he made it the state religion. Everyone had to become a Christian. In fact, there's records of him marching his troops into the river to be baptized. Uh, I happen to feel that was not a good thing, that uh, the church then really developed apostasy. But he presided over the first council meeting. Imagine that. That was in 325 A.D. at... Uh, Nicaea. And he then told them what he wanted to accomplish. Well, the general council was became the law-making body of the church. And they became the law-making body of doctrine and practice throughout the entire empire. So, when Constantine who was a pagan emperor before he became Christian, uh, he tried to get this pagan nation was forced to become Christian. Well, in order to be politically correct and not hurt all of the pagans, 
they began to paganize certain holidays and certain things uh, and place them in Christianity. We call that the paganizing of Christianity. And the way pagans worshipped actually became the way Christians began worship. And so there was this apostasy, this taking away uh, from what the Bible said was important in worship. Let me give you some examples here. One was the Lord's Supper. And uh, they began to really make it lengthy and pompous prayers. There were silver and gold vessels that were now used in the 3rd century and the 4th century. It began to be uh, observed three or four times a week at the tombs of martyrs and places of the dead. And that gave rise for the, the masses, the services being performed in honor of the saints and also for the benefit of a dead loved one. In fact, you could have a service in honor of your mother or your father. In the 13th century, the Mass was declared the literal sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. In other words, they would take the, the bread and say it became the flesh, the literal flesh of Jesus. The, the cup, the wine became the literal blood of Jesus. That's called transubstantiation. We're going to talk about that in a session uh, coming up on uh, some false beliefs concerning the Lord's uh, Supper. But they claimed that there was a divine miracle and that Christ was then sacrificed. And uh, it was done again for the sins of man. Well, in order for a sacrifice to take place, a priest had to perform it. Now, the term priest began to be used. And what a priest is, he is the bridge between the common person and God. And so the term priest began to be used. In 1415, uh, the church said that the cup should be denied the common person. Only the priest could drink that cup. And so he would say in Latin, translated into English, go, it has been sent. Because they believed that it had been sent to God through an angel and it must be accepted by God, this, this Lord's Supper. And so... As a result of all of this, and, and now the Catholic Church will take the Eucharist, take the bread, and they will dip it in the wine and give it then to the common person. Well, there began to be worship of saints. Uh, the martyrs' death was celebrated and they would then begin certain things that would be in honor of someone who was a saint. As an example, Constantine built a great church in honor of Peter, uh, St. Peter's Basilica. His mother, Helena, made a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem where the true cross was thought to have been. Um, realize, you know, this is 325 A.D., 
Okay? Pretty long time for that cross to still be there. But uh, in the 4th century, it was thought that saints should be prayed to, that they would be intercessors with God, that you would actually pray to them and they would tell God uh, they were actually able to protect, to heal, to aid those who honored them. In fact, you could even get a little medal with a saint's name on it and wear it. Or you could get a little statue and put it in your car. I, I remember those, those days. It's not as used as much. But they became guardians of cities. And so when you looked at a city, there was a particular saint that oversaw that city and protected it. And they became cures of diseases. Terms began to be used for Mary, such as Mother of God. Imagine that. Mother of God, handmaid of the Lord, Queen of Heaven. And she began to be deified. Now, in 1854, the Roman Pope declared that Catholics must believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, when I was young, I confused that. I, I thought that meant that Jesus was born without sin. It's not about Jesus. It's about Mary. It's saying that she was sinless. She was sinless, born without sin, because she was the mother of God. And in 1950, as early as 1950 from us, Pope Pius XII declared Mary was assumed into heaven. She was taken into heaven. She ascended body, soul, and spirit. Now, I don't know how he knew that, but he somehow knew that. And relics became very, very common. Uh, what are relics? Well, relics are certain articles that maybe came in contact with one of the apostles or with Jesus or with John the Baptist or, or something like that. So there was a uh, the crown of thorns. That was one that became very important. And then in the seventh council made this decree in 787 A.D. that if any bishop, meaning a priest, any bishop from this time forward is found consecrating a temple or a church, which is a term they used for the church, without building, without holy relics, he shall be deposed as a transgressor of the ecclesiastical traditions. In other words, in order to build a Catholic church, you had to have an, a relic in that church. And if you go to a Catholic church, they'll be able to tell you what relic they have uh, in their building. Well, as I said before, the, the, the world was pretty pagan. And so they began taking the festivals of these pagans and placing it into the Christian calendar. Uh, there was a festival for the purification of the Blessed Virgin. And it was to invent, it was invented to remove the uneasiness of the heathens' uh, converts' loss of the Feast of Pan. You see, the pagans had the Feast of Pan, and it was celebrated by the witches. And so, in the sixth century, they decided that they would switch that, and it would become the Blessed Virgin, purification of the Blessed Virgin.
In the fourth century, um, Innocent V made a festival, and that commemorated the lance that pierced the side of Jesus and the nails that fastened him to the cross. Now, and the thorns that he wore. And they would have festivals for that. And did you know that Christmas, December the 25th, is not really the birth of Jesus. It was a uh, originally a sun god and winter festival. And, and it was replaced by Christmas, December the 25th. So that was originally a pagan holiday. There were other departures that happened in the second century that began the sign of the cross or the use of holy water to protect you or even the rosary came into being. You know, the original rosary in that, there were 15 repetitions of the Lord's Prayer and 150 salutations to the Blessed Virgin. Uh, and there were also uh, variations of this. The Rosary of the Crown of the Virgin uh, with rep six or seven repetitions of the uh, uh, Lord's Prayer six or seven times or ten salutations of Ave Maria. By the way, Ave Maria simply means a prayer to Mary. Uh, one of the beautiful songs that was written was Ave Maria and it is a beautiful song. But we must understand that the term Ave Maria means prayer to Mary. And so the people became very upset with what was going on. Many of the scholars that, that uh, had learned realized that things were not right. And so they began to protest. And that's where we get the term Protestant. That's, they had protested against the Catholic Church. But really, they, what they wanted to do was to reform the Catholic Church to what it should be. One such great leader was uh, Martin Luther. In 1483 to 1546, he lived. He was born in Germany. He studied law and... Uh, he entered a, a monastery. He became a priest in 1507. And he was sent for study as a professor in the University of Wittenberg. In 1512, he lectured on the Psalms, uh, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, and Titus. Well, Luther began to doubt many of the things that the church was teaching. And it was suggested to him by the hierarchy that he make a trip to, quote, the holy city. Now, the, the holy city, you know, isn't Jerusalem. To the Catholic, the holy city was Rome. And so he went to Rome and was very disappointed in what he saw. He began to speak out about church abuses. And one of them that he really... Uh, spoke out against was uh, indulgences. Now, what is an indulgent? Indulgences. What are those? They, what that is, is if a loved one dies, they don't go to heaven according 
to the Catholic Church. They go to purgatory. And at purgatory, they have to really pay for their sins. So there's degrees of paying for your sin. But an indulgence would do this. If a person would give a certain amount of money to the church, that would shorten their time in purgatory. And so people began to give money in memory of their mother, father, or their loved one. Well, Luther was just aghast at some of that. Pope Leo X actually sold a position to Albrecht, an archbishop. And to pay for this then, Albrecht gave half of his proceeds to the building of St. Peter Cathedral. You see, positions became for sale. And you could buy positions in the church. Now, there was a, a person of, that was unscrupulous. He, was, he just was horrible. Uh, Johann Tetzel. It's an in, he would go around to various sections of the country in Europe and he would begin to preach about purgatory and how horrible purgatory was. And he would then begin to talk about how if they paid so much money, they could get a person out of purgatory. In turn, they would get a paper that would say they had done this for their loved one. Well, Frederick III influenced, or Luther influenced Frederick III not to allow Tetzel into Saxony, Germany. And that caused quite a stir in Rome because they were paying for that time St. Peter's uh, Basilica. Well, Luther became upset and began to teach against some things of the Catholic Church. He made 95 objections that he had. He called it the 95 Thesis. And he actually nailed it on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. That was done on October the 31st 1517. Now, Johann Meyer of Eck was a professor of theology and uh, he branded Luther as a heretic. And uh, men were sent to try to end this dispute. But you know, Luther by then had many followers that were agreeing with him. And so Luther was ordered to appear in Rome. <laughs> but he knew that what that was going to be, that would be his death. And that was in 1580. He actually refused to go. And so what the Pope did is he wrote a letter. And they call it a bull of condemnation. And he summoned him by order of the Pope. Well, Luther burned the letter in the presence of all of the students and the townspeople of Wittenberg. And he stood against the Catholic Church. In April 17, 1521, finally Luther appeared before the emperor. And they asked him to recant 
to change his position. And it is there that he made his, his famous statement. He said, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. And protest or the Protestant Revolution began or the Reformation. Now, after Luther said these things, his life was in danger. And he was seized by an elector, uh, Frederick, to Wartburg Castle. This very act saved his life. In September of 1522, Luther finished his translation of the New Testament into the language of the people, the common German language. And of course, that really infuriated the church. But God had been preparing things all along. Because in 1440, the Gutenberg printing press was invented. And they could print things very quickly. The Protestant Revolution or the Re Reformation used that printing press. Now, there was another man, Philip Melanchthon, and he was born in, in Breton, Germany, a noble family. His, his mother was a niece to John uh, Reichland, who was a linguist. And uh, this guy was smart. He, at age 17, he had gotten his master's degree. But he was the friend of the elector Frederick who had helped Luther. And he comes to Wittenberg ten months after Luther had nailed his 95 thesis to the door. He became a very popular teacher all over Europe. And as you study, he published a Greek grammar book. And Luther and Philip became inseparable. Philip was known as the great teacher of Germany. And Luther succeeded with the common people. Um, and so Philip did with the scholars. And so, it's an interesting story of those two. But there were others. Now, I do want to say something about uh, Elector Frederick III. Uh, even though he became friends with Luther, and even though he thought what was going on with Luther was bad, Frederick never left the Catholic Church. He always remained a loyal Catholic. But there were other men that began... Wondering, I mean, in Switzerland, the chief reformer of the German-speaking part of Switzerland, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, in 1482 to 1531, uh, it, he too studied at university at age 10. But he became a priest and was appointed to church in 1506 by paying for it. Once again, that's how corrupt things had become. But he was a, a preacher in Zurich, and on December the 23rd, 1518, he began to preach from the Scriptures, and that was unheard of in the Catholic Church. He, he also wouldn't allow a Franciscan monk from selling indulgences in Zurich. He refused him to come and sell those indulgences. But some of the things that he taught about was things that began to be main points of the Reformation. 
he began to say that salvation is by faith alone and that Jesus is the sole head of the church. And he denied this idea of the mass and the sacrifice that was going on with the Lord's Eucharist supper. He also did not believe in praying to saints. He said we ought to abolish images that are in our churches. And he did not believe in the relics. He also didn't believe in instrumental organs, by the way. Um, he, he felt that that shouldn't be in the church. But he made the sermon the center of the service. And he allowed clergy to marry. And he observed the Lord's Supper as symbolic or a memorial to the Lord. And he also fought in some of the political wars that were going on in Switzerland. Uh, and he marched, the people began to march against the uh, Protestants of Zurich. And Zwingli was a chaplain in the army and he was killed during those battles, one of those battles. There's another man that was in France. This was happening all throughout Europe by the name of Calvin. And uh, his father was into politics and held a post in the government. He was educated in Paris and studied law in the University of Orleans. He was a devout student also of the Bible. And he became a leader of the Paris Protestants or protesters. He was forced to leave France. He fled to Geneva, Switzerland. And he became there a very powerful reformer. Calvin is known for his writings called the Institutes on Christian Religion. Now, in this writing, he's convinced of the absolute authority of scriptures. But he held to some other doctrines of unconditional predestination. In other words, you were predestined for something. You had no control over it whatsoever. And he also believed that we were totally depraved and could not even come to the saving knowledge of Jesus by ourselves. He wrote a... Um, an acrostic called TULIP. And the T, stole, uh, the T stood for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, as many of you know, we've covered some of this in our um, discipleship course. And uh, we do not hold to the tulip, but he, that is where it came from, from his teachings. Well, there's another man in England, and he is king, and he's Henry VIII. In 1491 to 1544, now let me tell you, he wasn't a reformer, he wasn't even a religious man. What he wanted to do was divorce his wife, and Rome said no. And so, in order to divorce Catherine and marry Anne, well, he decided that uh, he would start his own church. And the Anglican Church, or the Church of England, was formed. And whoever was king or queen, 
is the head of the church. Now, in the United States, when we broke from England, it was no longer called the Anglican Church here in America, but they called it the Episcopal Church in America. And even today, the Queen of England is in charge of that church. I have a picture there of some of his wives. Uh, he seemed to be very uh, unscrupulous when it comes to uh, marriage. But there's another man that's going on, that's happening. His name was John Knox. He kind of looks like a fiery person. Um, and he had a friend, Wishart, and they led a revolt against the papal forces. You see, the church had its own army, had its papal forces. And both of these men, John Knox and Wishart, was uh, captured. And Wishart was burned at the stake. And John was taken as a prisoner, as a galley slave, for 19 months. When he was released, he fled to England. And he was a chaplain of Edward VI. But Edward VI was no longer king. Queen Mary became queen. She favored the Catholic Church. And when she comes to the throne, he has to get out of town. And he flees to Germany and then to Geneva. And he met John Calvin. And they worked the Genevan version of the English Bible together. In 1559, he returns to Scotland. And he became the founder of the Presbyterian Church. And that became, in Scotland, the state religion of Scotland. Now, as you can see, I didn't uh, uh, go into other ones and maybe you have one that you really liked, but I'm trying to give you an idea that throughout the land, change was happening. Reform had to be done to the Catholic Church. And there were protests, Protestants, who wanted to change the church. But the question remains, did the reformers go far enough? I mean, many of these people that broke from the Catholic Church and became denominations retained some of the practices and doctrines that were introduced by the popes. So the question was, did they really return to the Bible, to the ancient order of worship? Did they really return to the way the church should be governed? You see, there were many more things yet to be restored. And thus we come to the Restoration Movement. We are part of the Restoration Movement. And that movement is a movement that was done not by just one or two men, but many other men to restore the church to what the Bible says and the Bible only. So next Next week, we will be looking at the Restoration Movement. I want to thank you for viewing this. I hope it's been informative for you. And uh, next week, we will hit 
the Reformation.